Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. She is Stephanie McNeil, and you are watching AM to DM. Stephanie, you are back. You have made a full recovery from I, your running shenanigans. I have. Thank you so much, everyone, for tweeting nice things to me yesterday. I was telling everyone earlier, I felt pretty good all day yesterday, even though I had no sleep and I'd run a marathon the day before. And then around 1 p.m., I just kind of wilted and completely couldn't function and had to go home and take a nap. So you were just like, I am done for the day. Yeah, but I feel totally normal today. Uh, I tried to match Alex with my like wavy vibe, so back and ready for the news, per usual. <laughs> well, here's some news breaking this morning. Janet Jackson, Stevie Nicks, and Radiohead have been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Very cool. Some nice female Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. Very cool. I'm extremely excited about us, Stevie Nicks. Janet Jackson, Shaka Khan. I would spend all of my money to see those three perform in concert or go on a tour with each other. And we would be remiss if we didn't mention that Rage Against the Machine is also going to be inducted. And Isaac had a great interview with Tom Morello last week, which you should totally yeah, go back and check out now that we Tom. have this news. I know, we had him here first. Yeah, yeah I feel like they would, uh, Shaka Khan, Stevie, and Janet would be really smart to go on a tour and just like, people would definitely go see that. And they can like celebrate women in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's a free idea, you guys. Please Why don't you take it. Capitalize on it. Let's hear some harmonizing with the three of them. A Janet Jackson dance interlude. Give me everything that I'm asking for, and I will give you everything that's in my bank account. <laughs> oh, wow. How can I get that? <laughs> All right. Well, we have a lot of news to cover today, and we have an update from a story yesterday. BuzzFeed News tweeted in Taylor Swift's home state of Tennessee, where she voiced support for two Democratic candidates running in this year's midterms, voter registrations have also jumped. Connie Schultz tweeted this excerpt from BuzzFeed News' reporting, saying, we're up to 65,000 registrations in a single 24-hour period since T-Swift's post. Okay, so for context, 190,000 new voters were registered nationwide in the entire month of September, while 56,000 were registered in August. So basically, what our reporting shows that is that basically in like a few days, more people registered to vote than the entire month of August since Taylor Swift posted on Instagram. So, I mean, obviously there's other factors that could be at play here. We're getting closer to the midterms. Uh, there are other states who uh, voter registration is closing. But, I mean, we have to say it probably did have a little something to do with Taylor. Look, uh, it's possible that Taylor Swift you know, putting her support behind uh, just voting, being politically engaged, maybe push some of her fans who wouldn't otherwise have registered to get it together, or maybe it was a useful reminder. Um, as you said, there are a lot of reasons why, uh, and uh, certainly voter registration across a number of states could be one of those. And, uh, you know, to that end, Scott Nevins tweeted, I've highlighted the states that have voter registration deadlines this week. You can see that nearly 20 states here have deadlines to register. So... Like I said earlier, could totally just be that uh, there are a litany of reasons why, you know, I have to wonder if Kavanaugh is part of that and people are just feeling incredibly galvanized at this moment. Yeah, but I mean, we do, I do, we have to say it probably did have something to do with Taylor and that's not a bad thing, you know, anything that gets people to register to vote to get more politically aware, it's fine. But I mean, 65,000 over, you know, basically a 24 hour period, I mean, 
Yeah, we, we, got, we got to give some credit to Taylor there, <laughs> unfortunately. That's for your us. line. You're sticking with it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know, but I think I think it has to be so. Either way, we'll end on the street from pun master Ariel Edwards-Levy. To have Taylor Swift endorse your opponent is being called being Swift-voted. Ariel, you always got the best puns. One for the ages. Shout out to you. All right, here's a tweet from the TTQ podcast. This is my son, and I forgot him at home, and he won't go on dates because he can't drive. Stephanie, this makes no sense at all. Has the news finally broken you? No, Alex. Well, I will say I am very <laughs> broken. I actually, in this instance, am only quoting my new favorite Twitter meme. Oh, okay, so let me walk you guys through this. Over the weekend, a woman named Marla tweeted, this is my son. He graduated number one in boot camp. He was awarded the USO award. He was number one in school. He is a gentleman who respects women. He won't go on solo dates due to the current climate of false sexual accusations by a radical feminist with an ax to grind. I vote him too. Okay, so let's give a little bit of context here. Over the weekend, there were a lot of pro-MAGA, pro-Trump, pro-Kavanaugh people tweeting about how they feel like the men in this country are under attack. And I believe one woman even tweeted that she was going to outfit her son with body cameras when he goes on dates so that he can prove to the world that he's not going to sexually assault women, which, okay. And so this woman, she's not a famous Twitter person. She doesn't have like a ton of followers or anything. She just was kind of caught up in all of this, tweeted this out with a photo of her son looking very happy, which is kind <laughs> of funny. And yesterday, people on Twitter found it, started retweeting it, and it became this huge meme. Well, I think, you know, this is a moment where we deserve some levity just with all of this really heavy news. So I, I love that people are finding some humor in this. Uh, as you mentioned, I think it's worth noting that we've heard a lot of people, including the president and his son, say that now is a really scary time for men. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always worth reminding that, you know, the majority of folks who face sexual misconduct are women and uh, false accusations are incredibly rare. So uh, this is kind of a funny way of flipping that conversation on its head and having a good time with it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, here is my favorite of this meme. This is my son. He graduated number one from the University of Flavortown. He was awarded three banging fajita poppers. He was number one in Flamin' Hot Crunch. He won't go on solo dates due to the current climate of false accusations of taking the last slights of pizza. I vote him too. And that is Guy Fieri. Yeah, I mean, people had so many good ones. So good. So I good. actually wrote a little story about this for BuzzFeedNews.com. Plug it. And stuff. I honestly could not, <laughs> I couldn't pick which ones were my favorite. I mean, obviously, we had some mother boy in there with Buster from Arrested Development. Uh, but actually, the story right. over the course of the night last night just kept getting better. A guy claiming to be Marla's other son and the brother of the quote gentleman who respects women has been tweeting right along, been having a little bit of fun at his brother's expense. He goes by the handle Dancin' John Hansen, very cute, and he tweeted, my brother is trending on Twitter because of my mom's ridiculous tweet. I'm a mixture of laughing hard and feeling bad for him. And he posted some funny photos of his brother <sighs> as well, of course, because like, why not? Why not? <laughs> well, then Marla's little gentleman himself created an account to join, and he tweeted, that was my mom. Sometimes the people we love do things that hurt us without realizing it. Let's turn this around. I respect and believe women. I never have and never will support him too. I'm a proud Navy vet, cat dad, and ally. Also, Twitter, your meme game is on point. 
Yeah, so he created a Twitter account just because I think obviously his brother, Danson John Hansen, was like, hey, uh, <laughs> you've become a huge meme. And so his handle is at that was my mom. And he has spent, he's only had a Twitter account for nine hours. He has over 10,000 followers now. And he's spent most of his time sending cat pictures to Twitter. So we like him. I think we're into him. Look, I say keep on tweeting, hashtag believe women, keep posting those photos of cats. You can't really lose. <laughs> right on. And it definitely, I feel like, is one of those things where I think there's a lot of people out there who, you know, their parents have more conservative beliefs and post crazy things on the internet. And you know, he came out and was like, look, like, I don't support this. Um, you know, I, I believe women and that's like, that's like some guts. So we stand you, Peter Hansen. But guys, we want to hear from you. Have your parents ever embarrassed you online? Hopefully if they never made you a meme, let us know using your, the hashtag AM to DM. Whew. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed news reporter Ryan Mack. The story here isn't really the potential data breach, which may have affected hundreds of thousands, or that Google is shutting down Google+. It's that Google execs knowingly avoided disclosing an issue because they knew it'd invite government scrutiny and bad PR. Ryan is referencing a Wall Street Journal story which revealed that Google exposed user data of hundreds of thousands of Google Plus users last spring and then just didn't say anything. Fun. Google is now shutting down Google Plus. Aw. Ryan joins us now. How's it going, guys? Ryan, so why did Google decide not to tell any of the hundreds of thousands of people whose data was breached that this happened to them? So for context, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people is quite small for a data breach. Um, I think Google internally thought this didn't rise to the level of something that was legally required to be disclosed to its users. And interestingly, the journal got uh, some memos of uh, folks discussing whether or not they should or shouldn't. Ultimately, they decided they shouldn't. And, uh, and they kind of moved on and kind of swept it under the rug. So for Google, it didn't pass the bar or something that they needed to tell people, but what are the implications of this kind of breach? So in light of Cambridge Analytica, everyone of course knows that data breach that happened with Facebook um, that had tens of millions of users that were affected. Um, the kind of implications of this are that these tech companies have a lot of information on you and they kind of share this uh, widely with developers. And these third-party developers come in they develop tools on top of things like Google Plus um, and Facebook. And oftentimes they don't kind of check where your information's going. In this case, it was um, names, birth dates, um, not quite messages or emails, but um, a lot of personal information that people don't want out there with other people. You tweeted some interesting things that you thought this kind of reflects not only the culture of Google, but the culture of Silicon Valley as a whole. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Like I said, I mean, a lot of these um, social platforms, they have a lot of information on folks. Um, you share a lot of things with these companies without really thinking twice um, because you want to use their free email tool or their free social networking platform. And in turn, these companies, they're free. Um, they go out and they allow developers to develop on their platform to create new tools. And um, you don't, they don't really think twice about where this information's going and how it's being shared with other kind of um, developers. And so um, it's kind of a mentality that's, that's existed in the Valley for decades now. And people are starting to think twice about using these services um, because of this. So is Google sorry? And uh, will this mentality change? I think 
Google is sorry they put up a blog post yesterday. There wasn't really an apology. They kind of explained themselves a little bit. Um, uh, they have this internal uh, team now that's looking at potential um, places where data could be breached. Um, this um, this issue, ha for example, had existed since 2015. They haven't detected it until now because of this team. And so now they're changing their policies. Obviously, Facebook changed its uh, information sharing policy with, with developers recently, and I think Google's going to go that way as well. Okay, I have one final question for you, Ryan. Is anyone really going to miss Google Plus? Um, I don't. I checked mine yesterday <laughs> in years. Um, I'm sure a lot of people did as well. Um, I think I, I didn't even have a single post on there. But yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, Google had been trying to push Google Plus on people for years, and they kind of lucked out in this data breach because no one used it. So not many people had that much information on there. I just remember back like 10 years ago, everyone was like, oh, Google Plus is going to be the next Facebook, and it just never really happens. But RIP Google Plus, we'll miss you. Thanks so much, Thank Ryan. Thank you. On to more troubling news because, hey, that's where we are this week. BuzzFeed News climate reporter Zara Hirji tweeted, what does one and a half degrees of global warming really mean for the planet? Rising seas, coral reef declines, and more. That's based on a new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change out this week. Zara joins us now. Hey, thanks hey, for having good me. Morning. Hey, Zara. So the Paris Accord is centered around the goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. So what did this report have to say about that level of warming? So just to back up, the Paris Climate Agreement, countries said we really are aiming to limit warming to two degrees, but ideally we'll hit one point, we'll limit it at 1.5. And this report was requested because they really wanted to understand, okay, what does that half degree difference mean? And as you said, the rules are pretty stark and grim. Um, so I think one of the most shocking stats that I got out of this is in a 1.5 degree world, 70 to 90% of coral reefs would essentially go away. But in a two degree world, they're almost all gone. So it's the option between uh, bad and worse. Gosh, that's, uh, so yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really unbelievable. But um, one of the uh, authors of this report also mentioned that for some people, this could mean life or death. Um, what does that mean? Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, so, you know, it's not just coral reefs. When we talk about climate impacts, there's a whole array. I think one of the ones when it comes to who's going to be impacted is may sea level rise. So you could get more sea level rise. The difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees would be nearly a foot. So if you think about all of the communities that are living on the coast, an extra foot of water uh, means a lot, not just in terms of how much land is lost, but how much land is impacted, say, from hurricanes like Michael. Um, and so it's it's how is your livelihood going to be constantly impacted day to day or from stream weather events? And that, that half degree means that a lot of communities that are kind of right on that edge will be impacted more. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of the, the communities that will be worse hit are some of the poorest communities that don't necessarily have the best resources to respond or prepare or adapt against warming. 
So what would countries have to do to achieve a slower uh, warming pattern? Or what will they do or could they do? Those are two pretty big things. What it would require company or countries uh, to do is to reduce global emissions, essentially 45% uh, in the next couple of decades. Essentially, the what would be needed is by 2050 or mid-century, the amount of emissions we're releasing into the air, say by uh, driving cars, would have to equal the amount that we're taking out of the atmosphere. And that could be natural means like trees soaking up uh, carbon dioxide or using technologies which are not widely used right now, like carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS, of pulling, say, this climate pollution out of the air. And to get to that point of net zero emissions, that's the technical or wonky term, uh, would require a dramatic remake of kind of the world that we live in. Um, it would mean a huge scaling up of this technology that we're not really using right now, but it would also mean changing you know, our reliance on fossil fuel-driven infrastructure. Uh, some simple, on like an individual level, maybe it could mean um, eating less meat because actually the emissions around um, farming and in particular uh, cows and meat and animal production is really high. So that's like one step an individual could take. But we're at the point where we need more than just individual levels. And that requires countries, the whole world coming together to invest in low carbon technologies. So uh, wind, solar, moving away from fossil fuel driven technologies like coal. And, you know, that's kind of difficult. The, the interesting thing about this report is it's saying not only is the best case scenario grim with 1.5 degrees, but getting even to that best case scenario requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of buy-in. And as you know, from uh, being in the U.S. and my reporting on the Trump administration, that buy-in had looked like it was there when we all the countries had signed the Paris Climate Agreement, and now it's really come into question. And so there's a lot of emphasis on what's actually going to happen. Are we going to change course? Could this report, you know, maybe wake people up into committing to that kind of action that we need over the next couple of decades? Well, I certainly saw a lot of people on my timeline who were very alarmed by this. Zara, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. So we actually have some breaking news that we just got here on our phones. Axios, CNN, and the New York Times are reporting that President Trump has accepted Nikki Haley's resignation. So BuzzFeed News hasn't been able to confirm this yet, but we'll definitely keep you updated and yep. see how it's going. She's the UN ambassador, and uh, you know sometimes it feels like another day somebody else in the Trump administration is on their way out. So we'll keep up with this. Uh, yeah, and actually Sarah Sanders, the press secretary, tweeted that President Trump and Ambassador Nikki Haley will meet in the Oval Office at 10. 30 a.m. this morning. The event will be open to the pool. So basically what that means is they're going to be hosting an event in about 15 minutes in front of all reporters. So we'll definitely get to see everything that they have to say. So we'll see. We'll keep you updated. We'll keep an eye on this. But uh, first, we are going to stay in our own man-made hell because up next, it's Fire Tweets. So optimistic. <laughs> Just leaning into the pessimism. Yeah. <laughs> Okay.
Okay, so obviously we would just want to keep dancing and doing fire tweets and having fun, but the news never stops. So one more update to the Nikki Haley press conference in about 10 minutes. Trump just tweeted, big announcement with my friend Ambassador Nikki Haley. So I don't really know. It's, I mean, does that mean it's amicable that she's, as you know, a lot of people are reporting that she's leaving? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's going to be on during our show, but we'll keep you updated and let you know. My friend. Yeah. Who knows? Hmm. Maybe they are friends. I don't hmm. know. All right. Are you ready for some fire tweets to yeah, distract let's do this. us? Yeah. Okay. Sawyer Bulletier. Do regular dogs see police dogs and say, oh shit, it's the cops? That's my impression of like a dog. Of how a dog would be a. a um, dog. It's like a dog, like criminal. Yeah. Let's what move on <laughs> no! to the next tweet. Paige Elena. <laughs> Me. If you drink this coffee, you're gonna get jittery and anxious and you're gonna feel sick later. My brain. Good bean juice tastes like chocolate. Make me go fast. Yeah, I 100% feel this way when I drink coffee. I'm like, especially the cold brew here at BuzzFeed, that shit will mess you up. Yeah, I went to Starbucks and got a venti, just normal coffee with a shot of espresso and I think that's what had me like flying high through, through the day and through the show crash. until it just, everything changed. <laughs> All right. Wonder Boy tweeted, Moth, first time seeing Firefly. No fucking way. The moth was taken. I mean, imagine, you're like, okay, I know, like, moths have been a huge meme on Twitter recently. I don't really get it, but they're funny, <laughs> whatever. So, but, like, let's think about this from, like, an insect perspective. So, like, you're a moth. You're obsessed with lights. And then you see a guy that looks like you that has, like, a light on his butt. I know, and you just chase You'd after that thing. You'd probably be shook, but they're probably, not, they're probably not smart enough to even think that, so. Right, that's not happening in their little insect yeah. brain. I can talk about this all day, people. All right, I need one. to avoid the news. Okay, also true. <laughs> Daniel Kibblesmith, Jeannie, and for your third and final wish, me, admiring my new lobster hands, can you take a selfie for me? That's so weird. <laughs> Somebody made a bad wish yeah. and got lobster hands. So Daniel Kibblesmith's great. He used to work here. He has the fun. <laughs> right follow Friday, follow Tuesday, follow Daniel. All right, are you ready for the tweet of the day? I sure am. Okay. This is from Charles Kimbote. Me, okay, last week was real rough. Gotta calm down and try and be positive. The news, BT dubs, the world is gonna end when you are in your 50s. Okay, I feel like our producers here are not getting my vibe, which is like, I don't wanna talk about the news during fire tweets, so like, maybe stop. Look, I appreciate this one. It's like, you know, why get all bent out of shape over Kavanaugh and whatever news when we're all gonna be goners anyways. Leaning into my pessimism. Fine. <laughs> so great. I'm so excited. Okay, what's next? Can we go to the district and yes. talk about politics? Well, since we're staying on this uh, happy news, uh, you know, narrative this morning, up next, we'll go live from the district. Fine. Stay tuned. Love it. Welcome back. We're going to keep an eye on that Oval Office meeting with Nikki Haley, and we might talk to it once it starts. But while we're waiting, let's go live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Lisandra Villa. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. Loving that Hi, car. how are you? Great, how are you? Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, Just living another crazy morning in Washington, uh, D.C. Sounds fun. <laughs> For real. But uh, to some other news we've been discussing this morning, um, what other celebrity do you think would cause a bump in voter registration? Okay, so she doesn't even live in the United States, but J.K. Rowling, I think, just has, like, an army of, like, Harry Potter kids that 
she could probably activate with a single tweet. So I, I think that's something to keep an eye on. That's that so true. She would, she would tweet something like, oh, by the way, like Ron Weasley supports Marsha Blackburn or something. And people oh, by the way, did you like know Ron super, Weasley was running for office yeah, like in that su- book, even though I didn't yeah, include like it in the Yeah, like super line. shook. That's really funny. Okay, well, here's a tweet from HuffPost. On behalf of our nation, I would like to apologize to Brett and his family for the terrible pain and suffering that you have been forced to endure. The president told his new Supreme Court justice. Okay, Lisa, Kavanaugh swearing in ceremony was last night, and was it as partisan as it sounds from Trump's comment there? Let's just go through a couple of Trump's remarks here. So yesterday, Trump made the comment that Kavanaugh had been proven guilty, or I'm sorry, proven innocent, which is not true. Um, we're, we're likely never going to know exactly what happened with Christine Blasey Ford um, and these other allegations that have come up since then. Um, and then Trump also made the remark that this is a hoax put on by Democrats. There's absolutely no evidence of that. The president did make reference to Democrats, um, to some of these allegations being uh, represented by Democratic lawyers. That's likely in reference to Michael Avenetti. Um, And there is some evidence that I've heard that maybe Avenetti weakened Democrats' case. I had one Republican senator tell me Um, I think on on Saturday, as the vote was happening, that they were immediately more suspect of allegations represented by a Democratic lawyer. Uh, And then I had a Democratic senator tell me that he thought that Michael Avenetti sort of um, became a, quote, foil for the Republicans to use, but that ultimately it wasn't the deciding factor on how things played out. Um, But anyway, yeah, yesterday, very partisan day. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the word hoax. What do you make in this escalation of rhetoric around discrediting Dr. Ford? Trump definitely has seen a change in the way that he's represented. He initially started off by being very calm and cool about the situation, so that Christine Blasey Ford's allegations were credible. And then he went on to mock her at a rally, and now he's calling them the allegations hoaxes. So there's sort of been a transformation in the way that Trump has spoken about the allegations against Kavanaugh, to the point that yesterday he was like apologizing to him, to Kavanaugh, for the way that he'd been treated. It's kind of interesting, right, because you would think all of this has happened. Now, you know, the Republicans have won. He's getting in. You would think that Trump would try to just kind of be like, okay, that's over. Let's brush it under the rug. Obviously, that's not usually his style. But it's interesting that he seems to be escalating the fight when the battle has already been won. So do you think he's going to keep talking about this? I think what would the strategy be there? You never really know what Trump is going to do, and there's not necessarily a strategy, right? Um, But it it was interesting that Kavanaugh himself yesterday made the comment that he was going to try to focus on his work now. So as Kavanaugh is definitely making a a move to sort of distance himself from that, um, it'll be interesting to see what Trump does and whether he keeps keeps up these these talking points or just sort of lets, lets the past be in the past. You said that Kavanaugh is uh, making an effort to distance himself uh, from the political aspects of all of this. Um, Can you talk a little bit more uh, about that and just how he's trying to, to distance himself from all of it? 
course, yeah, like I said yesterday, he, he made the comment that he was going to try to focus on his work. He said that the confirmation process was contentious, but that he was going to try to move on, move forward. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what, what happens as, as uh, he joins the Supreme Court now, obviously, or has joined the Supreme Court, um, and just what his work there will be like and um, how much of a shadow will hang over him from all of, all of uh, everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks. Well, here's a tweet from you, Lisa. In a letter about Kavanaugh, Pelosi said she's filing for a FOIA request for the FBI report, transcripts of interviews, instructions from the White House, and any communication to the FBI from Senate Republicans regarding the scope of the investigation to, quote, preserve the full record of this dark chapter. Uh, is this call for an investigation a preamble to some kind of impeachment effort? I think Democrats are very hesitant to talk about impeachment. I know Cory Booker did make a comment um, that that it wasn't necessarily off the table, but the Democrats that I've spoken with, including some Senate Judiciary uh, Democrats, are not ready to go there. They're certainly not closing the door on investigating. Um, and Pelosi's comment there is sort of interesting just because right now Democrats are in the minority, so they don't have subpoena power, they don't have power to call an investigation, but it's something that she's taking a step to do that she can right now. Um, so, so it will be interesting to see what Democrats still want to do moving forward. Yeah, we talked to Paul about this yesterday, and the vibe he gave us was this is never going to happen, right? This is any move they make to try and act like this is going to happen is just political posturing to try and stir up the base. So is this why Pelosi and Booker, like you said, would do this? Or do you think that they actually think this could happen? Do you disagree with Paul? I think Democrats genuinely have a lot of questions about how this played out. And if if Democrats manage to take the House um, after the midterms, they will have a lot more flexibility in terms of how they can investigate and what they want to pursue. And this is something that's been very divisive. Um, so if they have questions, it, it's not unlikely that they'll that they'll seek answers. You know, Steph, one of the words that you uh, mentioned in your question was posturing. Mm -hmm. And so, Lisa, I was wondering, uh, could any of this uh, actually backfire for Democrats? Yeah, I mean, Mitch McConnell, after the confirming vote um, for Kavanaugh on Saturday, said that th this uh, Kavanaugh situation had ignited the Republican base. If you hear Democrats talking about how they want to impeach Kavanaugh, or even for the matter impeach Trump, it has a tendency to to um, get, get conservatives riled up, of course. Um, so I, I don't know what the moderation there that Democrats are going to want to make is. Um, but, but it is, I mean, something worth keeping an eye on is like how much is it worth talking about these things um, and how, how can it, as you said, backfire on Democrats? Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see because I could definitely see people getting angry with Democrats if this is just all, like I said, political posturing to try and serve the base. I feel like people are kind of tired of that right now. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on this stuff. Yeah, thanks. Let's keep an eye on Nikki Haley, too, and see what's happening there. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I was just about to say, uh, Nikki Haley, the press conference with Trump has not started yet, but we're definitely going to be keeping an eye on it. And actually, Hayes Brown is going to join us a little later on in the show to discuss what happens there. So don't turn away if you're interested in that. But when we come back, Chantal is sitting down with Cuba Gooding Jr. So don't go away. Awesome. I'm Chantal Rochelle, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with Cuba Gooding Jr., <laughs> Oscar-winning actor and director, co-writer and star of the new film, Bayou Caviar. 
Good morning. Good morning, well, my dear. How, how are you? I'm good. How are I'm you doing? Great. Thank Beautiful. you so much. I appreciate that. We just bonded over the fact that we're both Capricorns. That's right. So let's celebrate that. That's it. January, January 2nd. January 1st. Hey, hey. We rule the world. Tell starting off the year right. I That's mean, right. Absolutely. Let's celebrate that. So speaking of celebrating, <laughs> yeah. Why You Caviar. Such an amazing title of your film, by the way. Yeah, thank this you. is your directorial debut. That's right. So what was it like stepping behind the lens and having that more creative vision for your narrative? That's exactly what it was. More of a creative vision. Um, you know, as an actor, you walk into a set and you, you know, you surrender your performance to the director. And then sometimes you wait up to a year to see if he got it, if he understood yeah. it. And a lot of times you're like, that's not really what I meant to say. But as an actor-director, you know, you get in that editing room, you choose your takes, you choose your co-stars' co takes, and it's really about your vision, you know, and it, uh, it's intoxicating, it's a drug. Like I tell people now, I'd rather direct than that. Yeah. yeah. What was it like tackling such a dark, you know, thriller? It was, it was interesting, it was fun, you know. It's, it, uh, we shot in New Orleans, mm -hmm. and, and uh, that community down there just loves cinema, you know, so you, you, ha you had people who were just about making, allowing you to tell the story, you know, and, this is a story of an impoverished community down there who have good people who kind of get got up, caught up in this bad deed. Um, Richard Dreyfus plays a, a Russian mob boss who recruits my character, who's an ex-professional boxer, to get some dirt on one of his employees. So he devises this, this sex tape and it incriminates certain people and then everybody has to reap the rep repercussions for this, this, you know, this sordid act. So. Yeah, such an intense movie. I love it. So earlier this year, you, you did an interview where you talked about how you had such a difficulty finding really great roles after yeah. your Oscar win. So tell me, what was that time like for you? And is that the time that you discovered your passion for directing? It's 100%. That's exactly what it was. Okay. What happened is I started doing a lot of director uh, video movies, and the producers had pre-sold the movie to get the budget. So they didn't care what the content was. So they were like, yeah, whatever you want to do. So I would literally work with first-time actors, or sorry, first-time directors, um, rewriting the scripts with them, going in the editing with them, creating shot lists with them, working with the DP directly, and finally I said, you know, I should probably do this myself. Yeah, probably pick it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. And speaking of working with amazing directors, you've worked with Lee Daniels, Ava That's DuVernay, it. some prestigious, prestigious directors here. John Singleton. Yes, amazing John Singleton, we love. So when you went into TV mm -hmm. and working with that amazing Ryan Murphy, what was that experience like working on American Crime Story with him? Yeah, it was, you know, I had been offered to play OJ in a film two weeks prior and I passed on it. Wow. So my agents were hesitant to tell me about this offer. They were like, Ryan Murphy, I go, whatever you're gonna say, I'm in. Mm -hmm. And it's that type thing, you know. His vision is all-encompassing of that time period in, in America, 1992, dealing with the Rodney King beating and you know the racial tension in, in uh, South Central. So I knew that we were going to make a statement yeah. with the miniseries, and I believe we did. Absolutely. I mean, he nominated. Hello, let's yeah. celebrate that. You <laughs> yeah. did a great job yeah. there. Thank and you, speaking of racial, you know, things going on right now in society, you are an Oscar winner, and yeah. as an Oscar winner, how do you think the Academy is doing in terms of diversity and pushing the envelope and creating an inclusive industry for everyone? Yeah. Well, they got their work cut out for them this year. I mean, you look at the ratings, and it's and it dropped to their, you know, one of the lows in a long time, and I think. There has to be a balance struck, not just with racial diversity, but a lot of the statements that are made on the show, it's, it seems like it's getting away from the prestige. Mm -hmm. That's the excellence of film. I know they tried to do this popular film category this last year that didn't quite catch for them. So uh, it'll be an interesting time to see. I mean, the argument now is a lot of quality that we see is on television. I mean, Game of Thrones is, you know, 
one of the best shows, not only on television, but best offer, offerings of, um, you know, of storytelling, in, including inclusive of you know, going to the movie theater. So it'll be interesting to see how they, uh, the Academy kind of regroups and uh, represents themselves in the upcoming years ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of storytelling, you have such an amazing range. I wouldn't be, I'm not surprised when I see you in a comedy and a drama. I'm like, that's Cuba, that's your, your lane. And you know how to just really perfect your craft. And so speaking of so, you are now on Broadway, starring as Billy Flynn that's in Chicago. Right. Hello. So what is the, <laughs> tell me, what's the preparation like going and preparing for Broadway in comparison to TV and film and directing? Yeah, well, you gotta, you get with a vocal coach. I started a vocal training in September of last year. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was literally oh, wow. that far out. And then I flew to um, uh, New York from L.A. and did a month of, or two weeks of training with the company here on Broadway. And then I flew to London and did it with that uh, company on the West End stage for four months. Wow. So I was, I was ready to step on the stage, you know. And now I have five shows under my belt. Two shows Saturday, two shows Sunday, and a show yesterday, and I got another show tonight at 8 o'clock. Well, so. hello there. Yeah. We love a working man. <laughs> well, as a millennial fan, I have to ask you this. So, Is as this we see, listen, <laughs> you know my heart. And we're at BuzzFeed, so hello. I have to do the fans justice with this as well. And there's so many rebo reboots going on in Hollywood right now. Yeah. Would you ever revisit the Snow Dogs? Oh, absolutely. Movie? We got to find new dogs, though. I don't know if they're still alive. <laughs> they're still alive. Are they still kicking? Uh, oh, I don't think so. so. I think they're out of yeah. here. <laughs> have to be well you know huskies live pretty long 13 years 14 years but they probably we probably what kind of dogs well. would you want to do it with i'd do it with huskies okay again huskies again that'd be, okay. that'd be fun yeah especially with the winter time coming up hey i'm just saying that's all i'm dogs. saying too hey i mean that movie's one of my favorites so it's thank so you. so good well cuba thank you so much for stopping You're by and visiting awesome. us today You're appreciate awesome. you. you love a capricorn yeah. congratulations on the movie all right y'all bayou caviar is in theaters and on demand now up next nicole Wynn looks into the less than stellar reception of the new facebook portal Stay oh tuned. she's good Look listen at you. listen you just killed it <laughs> thank you The AP tweeted, Facebook is launching its first electronic device, a gadget intended to make video calls easier. Will people want a product in their home from a cop company with a shoddy track record for protecting user privacy? Okay, well that's the big question. This announcement raised a lot of questions, so we're gonna call Nicole Wen, BuzzFeed News' tech reporter, to hopefully give us some answers. Hey, Nicole. Hi. So this new product is called Facebook Portal. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is, how it works? Sure. So Facebook Portal and the larger Portal Plus are like um, echoes for Facebook Messenger. They're video chat devices that have a tracking camera that's powered by artificial intelligence that can follow you around the room as you move. And uh, if someone enters the room, it can detect them and it pans out um, and zooms out to, to accommodate them in the frame. Um, and it can also pair with your mobile phone's location. So when you're home, when someone calls you on Facebook Messenger, it'll call Portal instead of your mobile device. Um, and it's got a really big screen and listens for a voice command, Hey Portal, and also has Amazon Alexa. Um, so it can do essentially everything that an Echo can do. I feel like a lot of people were really skeptical about this when it came out. What are they so afraid of? Do you think it was the right time for Facebook to launch a product that tracks you with its eyes in your house? <laughs> I think it's a pretty bold move. Skeptics are reasonably afraid of uh, Facebook, which doesn't have a great track record of maintaining users' privacy and security. I mean, just this year alone, the Cambridge Analytica scandal and uh, Gizmodo's investigation 
a Facebook harvesting uh, two-factor authentication phone numbers, um, and also the recent security breach in which millions of users of access tokens were were stolen. So, so they do have a reason to be to be skeptical and and, and paranoid of this device. You tweeted a really interesting point yesterday. You shared a photo of Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and said, PSA, even Zuckerberg covers his camera. So he covers his camera in his laptop with a little piece of tape to, uh, I guess we would believe, keep people from watching him. So if Zuck's nervous about this, why should we buy this? I, I do want to mention that Portal has a little camera cover uh, aimed directly at people who are as paranoid as Mark Zuckerberg, um, that they will be surveilled. But he's not the only one. Even FBI director, uh, former F FBI director James Comey ha covers his, his webcam. Interesting. <coughs> so Torch tweeted, Amazon launches the Echo Show great device. Lenovo launches a smart display with Google Duo. Useful gadget. Google Home hub leaks. This could be a great device. Facebook portal launches, nope. Okay, so basically what this person is saying is a lot of other companies have put out similar devices. They're being way more better received by the public, but Facebook is getting a lot more hate. Why do you think that is? Uh, purely because people don't trust Facebook. Um, Amazon launched 12 devices last month and they didn't mention privacy once. Google collects just as much data as Facebook does and um, and I think that people just don't trust don't trust Facebook with their data. Yeah, I mean, clearly it seems like people are, it's kind of a bad time for Facebook to be launching something that is when they're, everyone's so concerned about privacy on Facebook. I personally, I've talked about this on the show, I kind of don't really care about privacy as much as I probably should. The device looks cool to me. What do you think? Would you buy it? I'm going to give it a hard no. Um, I also don't trust Facebook with my data, but it, it is a cool device. And I think that Facebook is a pretty powerful phone book. So um, for those who do want to get it, just be wary of, of the consequences for your privacy. All right, Nicole. Well, thank you so much for walking me through this. Thanks. Up next, David sits down with Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, the authors of Dear Evan Hansen. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Now, here's a tweet from Matt Bellasai, my old colleague. My dream is to have the power to make an entire crowd, crowd of people ugly cry as loud as dear Evan Hansen does every day. Whew, that is true. I am joined now by the people who have that power, my buddy Benj Pazic and his more talented colleague, Justin Paul, <laughs> who wrote the music and lyrics for Dear Evan Hansen. Welcome, guys. Hey, hey you, you guys have been busy this morning. You've been doing the media tour. Hey, it's <laughs> stopping by. Uh, now, we're here to promote this new book. I have seen things go from page to stage. I have never seen it go the other way around. What the hell is going on here? Yeah, we're pretty, <laughs> we're pretty excited. This is, I think, one of the first times that a yeah, show has ever gone from musical to, to book form, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we're thrilled to have it in a, a novel now. What's the motivation behind wanting to make it into a novel? You know, a lot of it came from actually fans of the show. We mm -hmm. uh, Once the show hit Broadway and uh, people started engaging with it around the country and around the world just from not seeing it on Broadway but listening to the soundtrack mm. or watching clips online or reading about it, um, we noticed a lot of fans of the show wanting to engage with the characters and with mm -hmm. the story and that took the shape of like fan art, fan fiction. Yeah. So there are already people creating sort of their own novels and stories of it and, and, and that combined with the fact that it's such a great way to get the story and the characters out to so many people. Like right now, you can see the show on Broadway, you can see it on tour. Yep. There's only two places a night in the entire world. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
you know, it felt like something that a lot of people felt connected to and, and brought people together. And so it was just a great next way to, to take the story to people. And taking these characters that you guys know so well and have worked with for years now and putting them in book form, that must have presented its own set of challenges as well, right? Different from writing the music and lyrics, I would assume. We yeah. were really lucky we got to work with Val Emick, who has written a novel before, and he's also a singer-songwriter. He understands how music can uh, aid in storytelling. And so we got to do, I guess, the reverse engineering process of how you usually adapt a book into a musical. He kind of helped us create it uh, into novel form, and uh, you know, a book allows you to not just have to have you tell your story in two and a half hours. You get to really dive deeper into characters and worlds that were sort of left on the cutting room floor as we developed the show over an eight-year period. There was a lot of material yeah. that we didn't end up using, and a lot of backstory, and a lot of you know inside the psyche of characters that we wanted to dive deeper into. Do you feel it's the same character? I was reading this, and Evan seems a lot more troubled in this than mm. on stage. Maybe that's just because you're going inside his interior monologue more, yeah, but is that know, fair? It's interesting. It's like, with a show, people see the show, and they think, oh, we're seeing this in Evan's head, but you're you're seeing it through his eyes, sort of, but you don't get inside his head that much. Yeah. You see him communicating with people. In the book, like Benj was saying, we get to dive really deep, and so you're, you know, I think if you see the show, imagine hearing a running, you know, a play-by-play -play of every mm -hmm. single moment of what's going on in Evan's head, how he's processing it, and he processes yeah. a mile a minute, and he's scattered, and he's all over the place, and so you feel that uh, on the page, uh, and it's a whole new way to experience the character. Benj, I know this, this uh, whole project started with something that happened for you in high school, so at your high school, right? There was a student in my high school who passed away, and I wasn't particularly friends with him, and a lot of people that I knew back then weren't really close with him, but after he died, everybody kind of claimed him to be a much closer friend than he actually was. And I, I was really fascinated by this phenomenon and why I, in particular, kind of wanted to be better friends with him than I really was after he died. I shared that with Justin, and we were really fascinated also with the phenomenon of why people did the same thing with 9-11, and, and mm -hmm. as you know, the internet became more prevalent, they would do it with celebrity deaths, that we would insert ourselves yeah. into tragedies that were not really ours to own. Um, and as we began to analyze that with our collaborator, Steven Levinson, on the musical, we thought, what about our generation feels more lonely, more isolated, more broken, that when we're presented with this opportunity to be a part of a community or to publicly proclaim that we're um, connected to something, that we'll jump at that chance. And right. that's, that really is where Evan Hansen started. Uh, a colleague of mine, Katie Natopoulos, tweeted uh, a while ago that she asked what was the incident in your high school and she got this ton of responses everyone claiming like oh that's right I, this happened this happened and I'm wondering uh, so this is a musical set in a high school what do you think about high school that makes it such a kind of there's such palpable emotion there I mean the one thing we've talked about also is like sort of what social media does for high school and we, we yeah. people often ask us about that and what we think about it and we have to remember we are now you know, more than a few years removed from high school. <laughs> and the thing that we think about a lot, which is heartbreaking, is sort of, you know, when we were in high school, to be left out of something, to be ostracized or just not part of the inner circle of something, you you heard about it the, the next Monday after class. Like, when you went back to class, whatever yeah. happened that weekend or whatever it was, now kids are sitting home alone on a Friday night or a Saturday night or whatever it is, and you're watching the play-by-play -play of all your friends or so-called friends. They're having a party. They're mm. going here or there or whatever, and you're sitting by yourself, and you have to watch that and experience that in real time. I think it creates such loneliness. The anonymity of social media sometimes can create really dangerous environments of bullying, of um, you know people being made to feel like they don't matter. Like th th So much of those issues come to a head as people are trying to 
finding their own identities in high school and being told so many messages. Did you guys have an easy time or a hard time in high school? I mean, I was a little theater gay kid, so it was like <laughs> devastating for me. I, but hopefully, nice yeah, be. exactly. We hey, found David. each other. Oh, exactly. oh, I love it. But you know, hopefully you take whatever pain you felt as a kid and you try to turn it into something that is meaningful. And, and mm -hmm. it's been really beautiful for us to see how um, other people have really gravitated towards the story of feeling like an outsider and and social media also has the power to bring people together and that's yeah. what's really powerful and it's it's a plot point in the show, but it also is true with, with how fans have connected to the show, and hopefully they will in novel form too, that, that when you feel alone and you feel isolated, you begin to realize when you read characters that also feel that way, that you're not alone in that loneliness, yeah. and that can facilitate a kind of community in and of itself. That's beautiful. I want to just read a little passage from the end of the book. This is when uh, Evan's talking with his mom about something big that's happened, a big confession, shall we say. Um, she absorbs my silence, seeming to understand the scope of it. I can promise you that someday all of this will feel like a very long time ago, she says. A mother has to say that kind of thing. She doesn't realize this will haunt me for the rest of my life. I'm wondering, now that you guys are older, where do you fall on that kind of debate between Evan and his mum there? Do you feel like you move on from these things in high school, or do these things continue, these big things in high school, do they haunt you still? I, look, I think that you hold on to the things that happened to you in high school and you try to work through them and we often spend a lifetime trying to work through the things that have, you know, that have plagued us as, as young people. But I think ultimately what this passage is, is pointing to, which I do think is true, is that there are people that are going to love you no matter what. And as you grow up and you feel more vulnerable to show what you think are the ugly parts of you or the parts mm -hmm. that no one will accept or, or no one will love. Or talk about the things that happened in high school. Right. Or you, yeah, you talk about the things that, you, that are, are really vulnerable or that you think you're not supposed to talk about. You that there are, will be people that will show up if you are vulnerable enough to let them. Yeah. And, and I think for me, at least, that's, that's proven true. And, and that's really a, a big part of the narrative of Evan Hansen. Uh, you talked about briefly about social media, and I wonder, um, a, a big part of the concept of the book, at least um, as it moves forward, and as the play, obviously, is uh, uh, people believing in something even though it doesn't have truth in it at the end, and whether or not it's okay that that's allowed, um, you know, that people find happiness in something that may or may not necessarily be true. And I'm wondering, in this kind of social media world that we live in, with the current president that we have, do you guys think truth matters anymore, as long as people are kind of happy with what's going on? <laughs> well, it's interesting, like, I feel like our show, in a way, uh, uh, lands on both sides of that question a little bit more than I, like, necessarily, I think we might want to in our yeah. world of no real facts. Um, I think what the show points to is ultimately people finding authentic and true and real ways to connect. Mm. And so I think that's the message that we would want to put out into the world and, um, and what we value. But I mean, it is interesting because if people are brought together by something in a, in a productive, beautiful way, there is that question of, well, was, it, was that whole greater than the sum of its part? Yeah. Or did, did, were, did the means justify the end? But, um, it's such a dangerous question at this moment in our country, in our world. And ultimately, it should be a conversation starter. The fact that you're asking right. the question. We want people who are, are, who are seated at the show or who are reading the book to ask these questions and, and ultimately begin to debate, you know, how do we get to a place where authenticity and truth do matter again? Mm -hmm. Well, it's an, I was supposed to say at the top, this is an Oscar-packed show at the start uh, that we're having today. <laughs> Cuba's here, we've got you two here, you've won the Oscar, you've been signed up to do, I can't let you leave without asking about Aladdin. Uh, uh, I don't know what the people at Disney will let you say. <laughs> Probably not much. Yeah, not much, but what, what, not much. Well, let's pretend for a sec that they're okay. not listening and that this isn't being broadcast live. <laughs> uh, okay, how do you, you guys are writing some new songs for Aladdin, the live action remake. How do you begin to even approach that, something so beloved as that? 
What do you guys? Well, how? What headspace are you in? Well, we're very lucky because we the, the this this gig was getting to do it with the master Alan Menken, who mm -hmm. was responsible for the soundtrack of all of our childhoods and everyone watching probably. Um, so uh, so we got to work on new song. We wrote lyrics for new songs for Aladdin with Alan and. Our process was, I'd say, 70 to 80 percent just asking him to tell us stories about Little The Little Mermaid and <laughs> yeah. the original Aladdin. Yeah. And then 20 percent of the time, we'd like work and write that and write nice. songs. Um, but it was great. I mean, we love these characters. We grew up with these characters. We're obsessed with Jasmine. We're obsessed with Aladdin. Right. We, so, we, like, we really credit the Disney movies with being uh, the reason why so many people in our generation have found this new love of musical theater. Yeah. It really is. You know, my first movie that I ever saw was The Little Mermaid in theaters in 1989. And when you really Aladdin track was that, my first CD. Yeah. Wow. It's like that's why. I think musical theater has had this this uh, popularity in in uh, popular culture again because I think we all grew up, you know, being used to characters breaking into song and thinking, you know what, that's not only cool, that's just how people express themselves. <laughs> and so uh, we were really grateful that we got to collaborate with the guy who is really responsible for us loving the art form. How many new songs are there? Can you tell us that? We actually can't only because we don't know. Okay, like fair we we I'm, wrote a few. Uh, we think that there's because like everything stuff gets cut, put back in. I think there's two now or maybe one. Yeah. I, I don't know. But we wrote the songs almost a year and a half ago or two years ago. So you know we don't know what's going to end up in the final movie. It's but a guy Richie film, and so he's doing his thing right now of putting stuff in, plugging it in, taking it yeah. out. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens, guys. Yeah. All the best with the book. Thank if you're you so on Broadway, much. if you're near one of the touring productions, please go see Evan Hansen. You will weep like a baby. <laughs> I did. The whole audience was in tears. I, like, I've never been anything like it. Anyway, uh, stay tuned because Alex and Stephanie are up next reacting to some of your tweets. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Wait. Well, it never ends. After breaking news that Nikki Haley has handed in her resignation, Axios tweeted, Nikki Haley discussed her resignation with Trump last week when she visited him at the White House, two sources said. Her news shocked a number of senior foreign policy officials in the Trump administration. BuzzFeed News Deputy World News Editor Hayes Brown joins us now. Good morning, Hayes. Hi, guys. <laughs> now, Hayes, I tweeted to our viewers for questions they have for you, and here's a quick sampling. Why? Why is this happening? Who is mm -hmm. happening? So Hayes, why <laughs> and who? So Ambassador Nikki Haley, like you said, announced today that she handed in her resignation to the president. She's been with Trump since the start of the administration, which not a lot of cabinet officials can say. She's been post up here in New York, uh, but also a member of the cabinet. She's been on equal footing with the secretary of state this whole time. And for her to announce that she's leaving now ahead of the midterms, uh, when she says that she's still going to finish out the year at the UN. Everything is very weird. Everything feels very weird. And what is my response to their why? Yeah, I mean, obviously this just happened. We don't have a ton of details. And she's, you know, not really said why she's leaving. Like, she's put a, just like, oh, it's my time to go, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, why do two you, years. Yeah, why do you think that she's leaving? Do you, is it just the kind of she's tired of it or what is there other more so, speculation so this is one of the things that twitter does best which is the parlor game so here's the thing about nikki haley she has been you know uh very tough on russia very strident in her support of some of the her position in the trump administration has been one of on the one hand being the toughest person in the administration on russia publicly speaking 
but also going along with Trump's foreign policy at the UN, much to the annoyance of the nations she had to negotiate with. She's been in favor of moving the Israeli, uh, the U.S. embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. She's been in favor of cutting funding to the Palestinians and a bunch of other decisions that have put her at odds with her fellow UN ambassadors. But none of that seemed to like telegraph that she was on her way out. Uh, there's the thing that she... There's been a lot of speculation about the fact that she might be running for president in 2020. She's denied that. She says she's going to campaign for Trump. There's one con- convoluted speculation where they, people think that Trump is going to fire Sessions, appoint Lindsey Graham, and then Nikki Haley is going to run for Graham's seat. So that would be wild, but it's all just people have no idea what's happening right now. And in that void, people are filling in speculation and possibilities. Well, Hayes, uh, speaking of speculation, there is also speculation that Ivanka Trump could fill the role. Can you unpack this a little bit for me? Sure. I mean, me and my editor, Miriam, we saw someone tweet about this like right after the news broke that Haley was leaving. And we had a chuckle for a second. And then we thought about it and realized <laughs> it doesn't sound too far-fetched, actually. It's the sort of role that w- a lot of people, I'm sure, in the Trump administration think that it's, you know, an easy gig. It's sort of a like handshake, glad hand politician job. And Ivanka has expressed interest in foreign policy. She's expressed interest in some of the um, softer aspects of foreign policy, which is, you know, a welcome thing in an administration that's very focused on the bombs and bullets side of things. But for her to actually be nominated and confirmed by the Senate and appointed to the UN would be wild. That'd be so weird. And let's not forget how strange it was. Uh, I believe it was last year when Trump had Ivanka sit in at a meeting for him at, I think it was the G7. He got up and left. Ivanka took her, his seat at the table. And we all were like, what is he? What's happening here? So to make it official would be a, it'd be strange. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things where I feel like one person put it out into the universe on Twitter and then people are showing photos of Ivanka in the actual room during the announcement. Uh, Someone, a Trump bot, was saying that she just followed like a ton of accounts that now they're saying, oh, that's because she's about to. She followed the NSA, the DOD press, a bunch of like official government accounts she just followed yesterday. So So that feels fine. It's one of those things that people are like, oh, my God. And now, like, everyone's talking, oh, my God, it's going to be Ivanka. Uh, Another thing that literally just happened was Nikki Haley called Jared Kushner a hidden genius on foreign policy. Hidden genius, What do you think about that? That's interesting. So one of the things that she praised him for was the NAFTA negotiations, which I I wasn't really aware that he was still handling that uh, on a sort of, like, day-to-day basis. I'm not sure. I knew that he was had a he was working with Mexico before, but I didn't know he was specifically doing working on NAFTA. So I don't know Jared though. Another potential seat filler at the UN once Nikki Haley is out. But again, Nikki Haley's not leaving until the end of the year. So we not only have to think about who's replacing her, but how she's going to get confirmed once the midterms are done. Is it going to be rushed through in a lame duck session uh, if the Republicans lose control of the Senate? If Democrats gain control, who are they going to be find acceptable to be the U.S. ambassador? Is John Bolton going to make a comeback? Who knows? 
Yeah, I mean, it really would be interesting if they tried to nominate Ivanka and then the Democrats took over and then it was like caught up in that. I know something that just also randomly popped into my mind was that on House of Cards, this was the position Claire Underwood had. <laughs> I don't know, but it's just- So many questions. <laughs> so many questions and not enough answers yet. Yeah. So we, one of the things that has been wild has been the fact that uh, she didn't really tell anyone. They seen reports that she told Trump a few months ago that she was considering leaving after her two two year stint was up, which again short span for a cabinet level official to say that they're doing. But her staff was apparently surprised this morning. She only told top level staff reportedly this morning. Uh, I spoke with a Western diplomat at the UN today who says his office, which you would expect to work close with the U.S., was not briefed ahead of this. So. Uh, if it's something that's you know been long planned, she's been holding it very close to the chest, which strange. Yeah, I I I think that the I think that she's going to go for the Senate seat, but that's just my speculating. And if we all know Twitter is going to speculate till the end of time until we get some answers, so we'll definitely keep an eye on our timeline. Thank you so much, Hayes. Thanks, guys. And of course, we will be watching this story today as it develops. But now, it's time to move on to your tweets. Well, we asked if your parents ever embarrassed you online, and Kate Dolls tweeted, No, but I grew up before the internet, so my mom just stood in the school <laughs> parking lot waving a rubber chicken to achieve that desired effect. Kate, that is so hilarious. Your mom sounds awesome. The old-fashioned way of embarrassing your kids, just doing it in person. I just, I need to see a photo of your mom just, like, with the rubber chicken. I have so many questions and so many beautiful images in my brain right now. Yes, indeed. I can't say my parents ever showed up with a rubber chicken, at least. Now, with Saeed and Isaac out this week, Rachel Haig-Girlfield had this to say, loving that women are mostly featured on today's show. Yeah, it's so yes. great. Yes, I, I love, love when the show accidentally, I feel like sometimes when it's two women hosting, it ends up being a lot of female guests. And I think there was actually one show where we didn't even have any male guests at all the whole mm -hmm. time. So, I mean, no offense, guys, but it's kind of fun. Yeah. You and know? I would be remiss not to mention that uh, most of our producers are women yes. and so incredibly vital to actually making this whole thing happen. Yeah, what you don't see behind the scenes is our team of girl power always working <laughs> to bring this show to you. Well, thank you so much to our guests today, Hayes Brown, Benj Pasek, Justin Paul, David Mag, Nicole Wen, Chantal Rochelle, Kubit Gooding Jr., so cool, Lisandra Villa, Zara Hirji, and Ryan Mack. Stephanie will be hosting with Sylvia Obel tomorrow. So excited. See everybody then. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>